Well, when I read this passage uh, early in the week, there was a quote that I've used here before which uh, sprung immediately to my mind. It comes from the late evangelist David Watson, who used to say that Jesus promised his disciples three things. They would be absurdly happy, completely fearless, and in constant trouble. That's a pretty good summary, isn't it, of the passage we've got. You might as well almost go home, I think, in some ways. Uh, You couldn't get really much better than that. It's not just a summary, actually, of this chapter, but it's really a very good summary in general of the book of Acts and the Christian life. Uh, Remember, from the drama of Pentecost, uh, just a couple of chapters ago, when uh, the Holy Spirit fell in power on the church, uh, immediately there follows opposition. And that has always been the way of things in the Christian life. It's always been like that. Uh, God works in power. Uh, Satan pushes back, as it were, in opposition. That, 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 that push and that pull, uh, it always works, and it continues even to this day. Uh, Peter and the other disciples, of course, when they experienced this, shouldn't have been surprised, and neither should we. After all, that had been Jesus' experience, hadn't it, throughout his uh, ministry. First he was acclaimed, the next minute uh, he was uh, facing opposition. Uh, Jesus promised even that that was what was going to happen to his followers. Remember his words just on the night before he died, John uh, chapter 15, chapter 16. He said, didn't he, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In fact, he said, a time is coming uh, when anyone who kills you will think that he is offering a service to God. They shouldn't have been surprised, and neither should we. Well, we say, don't we, that forewarned is forearmed, but what happens when we face persecution? What would happen to that early group of Christians? Just a a small gathering in Jerusalem at the start of the Christian church. Uh, Would they fall away, as they had done uh, the night before Jesus died? Would they endure? What will happen to us? What's the secret to persevering under pressure? What will our secret be? How will we keep going uh, when things get difficult, when we face opposition today for following Christ in a world that hates him? Well, I think Luke's account here, this is the account of the first persecution that the church experienced, uh, falls very neatly into three sections or three scenes. And it seems to me, as I've been studying it this week, that each scene carries with it a principle Uh, for us in dealing with opposition to the gospel. So three scenes and three principles in dealing with opposition to the gospel. Let's look at the first one, shall we? The first is this. It's expect persecution. Expect persecution. Now the context for uh, this reading is found in uh, chapter 3. Peter and John had been attending temple worship. And then they were accosted by a cripple, a crippled beggar. He'd been uh, crippled uh, for, for, for many, many years. And before a crowd of thousands, in the name of Jesus, Peter had healed him. And then he had boldly proclaimed the Christ in whose name that healing had taken place. Now, unsurprisingly, of course, that had drawn uh, some unwanted attention uh, from the authorities. Uh, and Luke tells us, doesn't he, at the start of our reading, that the temple priests, the captain of the temple guards, that's the high priest's right-hand man, uh, and the Sadducees, one of the groups of, the, uh, of Jews around, uh, interrupted Peter's uh, sermon. Uh, significantly, we're told something about them, aren't we? Uh, it's verse 2. They were greatly disturbed, or as some translations put it, thoroughly incensed. They were stirred up. Why? Well, again, 
Uh, Luke tells us the reason, verse 2. Uh, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The authorities must have assumed that they'd put an end to all this Jesus nonsense. I mean, after all, they'd uh, crucified him, haven't they, eight weeks earlier. They put him to death on a criminal's cross. They'd seen him laid in a cold grave. They must have thought that was the end. Dead men don't rise. Uh, They know that. And yet, look what's happening, what, eight weeks later. We've got his followers back again, whipping up the crowds and claiming that the man that they crucified and laid in a grave is alive. And why is he alive? He's alive because God himself has raised him to life. No wonder they were greatly disturbed. And where were they doing it? They were saying all these things in the, in the heartbeat of Judaism itself, the temple courts. That is a challenge, isn't it? And no wonder their response, we're told, was to arrest the apostles. That was the simplest way of preventing them from sharing uh, what they had seen and heard. Uh, the great reformer Martin Luther once said, if they gave our master a crown of thorns, then why should we hope for a crown of roses? If they gave our master a crown of thorns, why should we hope for a crown of roses? It's an inescapable truth that wherever the good news of Jesus Christ has been faithfully proclaimed, opposition has very, very quickly followed. In fact, I think we might almost go so far as to say that actually if opposition doesn't follow, we might question whether we are really proclaiming Jesus at all, actually. We might want to examine the contents of our witness. Because as we see in this passage, the gospel challenges the order of things, or the status quo. It calls for new loyalties and new priorities. It calls for a whole uh, new lifestyle. Because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, as Christians claim, then surely everything that he ever said before that is proven to be true. That was his grandest claim. No one else has risen from the dead before like that, and no one has uh, since in the same uh, way. Jesus said he made many claims through his life, didn't he? He said he was the Son of God. He said that he could forgive sins. He said that he would die on a cross and all that would happen would come true. He would rise from the dead. And it happened. And so if that is true, then surely that is the crowning proof of all the evidence that Jesus gave uh, during his lifetime. He can't simply be another wise teacher, as so many in the world would have him. So many people believe that, well, he just said some wise things and some great moral teaching. And of course that is true. There was never a man who spoke like Jesus. There are many people who claim that he was just a charismatic prophet who gathered around a group of people for just three years or so, but then it all fizzled out. He never achieved the revolution that he came to bring. But Jesus won't allow us to make that judgment of him. Because actually that's not what he claimed he was. He claimed that he was the Son of God who came to forgive sins. He claimed that he would die on a cross and that he would rise again. And so if the gospel is true, then that changes everything, doesn't it? He must be God. Perhaps you are facing uh, this morning uh, opposition in the workplace, or maybe it's at home or somewhere else, for, for, for trying to be a faithful witness to Jesus. Just uh, last week, Claire and I were away on a summer camp that we've helped on for a number of years, uh, and I was talking to one of our friends there who's going through a really difficult time at work, uh, really facing opposition for being a Christian. And it's really hard, isn't it? 
Uh, maybe it's not so much opposition at home or in the workplace that, that bothers you. Maybe it's the opposition of perhaps the media or public figures. Uh, some of the vitriol that comes out against the Christian religion from uh, many sources is very hard to, 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 to take. And it's hard to believe. But friends, take heart. Because whenever the gospel is proclaimed, we can expect persecution. It will happen, as sure as night follows day. That's what happens. But wonderfully, even persecution cannot prevent God from working out his purposes. Have a look down at verse 4. Luke says, Many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The blood of the martyrs, friends, is the seed of the church, as the early Christians used to say. The more the Christians are persecuted, the more God is pleased to grow his church. It's always been the case, and it's the same here. That's the first principle, expect uh, persecution. What's the second one? The second one is this, evangelize in God's power. Evangelize in God's power. Uh, Luke records for us that on the next day, Peter and John were marched in front of the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin was the Jewish supreme court. It was the highest court uh, in the land. So uh, there was this serious stuff. Uh, And let's be honest, they were on trial for their lives here. Uh, This is the same court that eight weeks earlier had condemned Jesus to death as a threat to law and order and as a threat to the Jewish faith. The stakes really could not have been higher. We can only begin to imagine what was going through their minds as they were marched in. I think they could have been forgiven for thinking this might have been the end. I don't know what you would have done in Peter and John's position. I guess if you're anything like me, you probably would have just kept your mouth shut, your head down, uh, accepted what was coming to you and just hoped that somehow you might be able to get out of this alive. But that's not Peter's way, is it? <laughs> he gets asked a straightforward question and he, is given a straightforward, he gives a straightforward answer. The question, verse 7, what power or what name did you do this? And he goes straight in, doesn't he? And he tells them, by what name? The name of Jesus. Because the one who healed that crippled beggar is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. The one who eight weeks earlier the same courts had put to death. He's not just a man, but as Peter says, he is the Christ. Christ is not his surname, it's a title. It is uh, that he was the promised king that the Jewish nation were longing for. The king that these people should have been waiting for and they had never recognised. And Peter says wonderfully, he is alive in the power of God. Uh, He tells us uh, as well that that salvation, that healing that he accomplished physically in that crippled man, he now offers to all who will turn to him in faith. Verse 12, wonderful words. For salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I mean, it's an extraordinary response, isn't it, in so many ways as we sit here reading this. It's extraordinarily clear. It's extraordinarily courageous, given the context into which Peter is speaking. But I think it's even more remarkable, given the man who makes it. You've been doing a series, haven't you, looking at the episodes from the life of Peter, and and you'll well know what you will have seen uh, so far. Uh, Peter, early in his life, couldn't get it right, could he, in so many ways. Uh, Think early on in his time, I mean, he, he was a stammering coward in many ways. Uh, he abandoned Lord Jesus to a lonely death on a cross. And yet now, just two months or so later, he's been transformed, hasn't he? A bold warrior. He's prepared to risk everything, even his very life, for the sake of the honour of Jesus and for the gospel. But when we see that, we're bound to ask, what has caused such a turnaround? 
What has transformed Peter from this a sort of a coward skulking away in the shadows, denying that he even knew Jesus, to becoming someone who is prepared to testify in the highest court of the land? Well, Luke tells us what the answer uh, is, doesn't he, in verse 8. And we could very easily miss it if we just read over it. This was his secret, verse 8. He was filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. At Pentecost, of course, the Holy Spirit had been poured out in abundance on uh, God's people. And here is the evidence that that had been so. Because Peter can witness with boldness to the risen Lord Jesus before a hostile council. Uh, Not only is it proof of the power of the Holy Spirit to transform someone, but it is, of course, confirmation of Jesus' words to his disciples. He'd promised them they didn't need to fear when they were arrested. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter 10, he said, At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Holy Spirit speaking through you. So we see, faced with the threat of death, Peter evangelises in the power of God. Uh, some of you may have read uh, quite an old book, actually, uh, called Tortured for Christ by Richard Wurmbrand. I remember reading it as a teenager many, uh, many years ago. Uh, Richard Wurmbrand was a pastor in communist R- Romania under the uh, Iron Curtain. Uh, and in Tortured for Christ, he, he records how he came to be first arrested. Uh, he was arrested after speaking for Jesus at a rally. Uh, the communist authorities, newly, uh, uh, newly in post, uh, assembled uh, all the pastors in Romania to come together for a great congress. And one by one, they were invited to come to the front uh, and in front of the Congress to testify about the superiority of communism over Jesus Christ. Uh, Richard Van Brand sat there and I think was torn what to do. But he knew that he owed his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when he was invited to the microphone, with enormous courage, he testified to the gospel of Jesus Christ and its superiority over any political system and over anything else that sets itself up against him. And he was arrested. Wonderfully, we're told in the book that because this uh, congress was being broadcast over the nation, inadvertently, the whole of that communist nation were evangelised through hearing his faithful testimony of Jesus Christ. How does somebody like Richard Van Brand or uh, Peter in this passage stand for Jesus in such circumstances? Well, the answer must be because they are standing in the strength of God. Because if you or I were to try it in our own strength, we would surely fail. Now, many of us will not be put in situations like Peter. We won't be put in the situation that Richard Wurmbrand found himself. We won't have the opportunity that they have had, perhaps. But we will find ourselves in difficulties. And we can certainly pray that like Peter and John and Richard Wurmbrand, when the time comes, we will be given power to speak for Jesus. To speak winsomely, yes, but to speak boldly of what we know, the hope that we have. And friends, when we ask that prayer of Jesus, he is one he's very pleased to grant us. He always promises that he will grant it uh, when we ask him. Expect persecution. Evangelize uh, in God's power. What's the last principle? Finally, it is to endure under continued pressure. Endure under continued pressure. Uh, We're told that Peter's sermon brought astonishment to the minds of the authorities. Uh, Luke tells us, actually, in passing, I think they realised what the secret was, because they noted, didn't they, in verse 13, that Peter and John had been with Jesus. But if Peter and John thought that they were going to get off lightly, they had another thing coming to them. It's very clear that, really, this was just the end of the beginning. 
because they were ordered to leave, and then after another meeting, the uh, Sanhedrin ordered them to stop uh, their ministry. Uh, They couldn't deny what they had seen. They couldn't just pass it away. They couldn't uh, dismiss it. And so they did the next best thing, didn't they, for them? Uh, To forbid the apostles from speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he could do and what he had done uh, at his death and resurrection. Well, again, we might wonder what the response of the apostles might be. I mean, if they'd been, having been hauled before the highest court and land wasn't enough to shut them up, then the thought of they might well face further action probably would be enough, I would have thought. But Peter and John are made of different stuff, aren't they? <laughs> they remain steadfast under pressure and refuse. Verse 19 and verse 20, this is what they say. Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God." For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Ultimately, Peter and John knew that they are accountable to a higher court even than the courts of the Sanhedrin. They are accountable to the court of Jesus Christ. At one day he will return and all of us will be asked to give an account of how we have spent our time and what we have done with the good news that we know. And they know that ultimately they must fear God rather than fear men. They owe allegiance to a higher throne. They cannot help speaking about what they have seen and heard. In the face of continued pressure, these apostles remained faithful. They endured. They feared the consequences of disobeying the command of God more than the consequences of disobeying the authorities. Now, of course, this raises questions for us, doesn't it, about our relationship as Christians uh, in the world both as citizens of a nation, perhaps as employees as well, under the authority of our bosses. Now, of course, the Bible tells us that we are called, insofar as is possible, uh, to be obedient to those in authority. Uh, Whether we voted for them or not, the government have been set up in authority above us by by Christ. Uh, We are called to give uh, obedience to them. They're put there uh, by him for his purposes. And yet, at the same time, the Bible also tells us that we are citizens of another king, another kingdom, one which is to come. And we owe allegiance, ultimately, to a higher throne, the throne of King Jesus. And if pressure continues to rise, then only one must win out. We're called to remain steadfast to Jesus Christ over all else. Now, there's no doubt that that will prove costly for many people, and it does prove costly. We know we've got friends here in our church family here, haven't we, who know very well what that means, to owe allegiance to Jesus Christ over everything else, whether it's family, friends, the state, uh, you name it. It will be costly. It'll be costly for many of us. It might mean loss of job, it might be moving away, it might mean moving country even for some of us. Who knows? But that is what we owe. Uh, just recently I was reminded of the case, you might remember this, of Dr. Richard Scott. Dr. Richard Scott is a Christian GP uh, from Margate, I think, uh, down in Kent, uh, who uh, was uh, facing uh, well, a reprimand from the GMC uh, for sharing his faith with a patient. That's just one example. There have been many others, of course, haven't there, of uh, similar situations. Uh, what it will look like to endure under pressure will look different for each of us. For some, like Richard Scott, it might involve a tribunal, it may involve a loss of job, we don't know. Uh, it's still being worked out. But at the same time, we can't expect to escape it. Because we can expect pressure like Peter. Pressure to be silent, pressure to keep quiet about what we've heard, pressure just to you know, keep your faith to yourself. And the question for all of us is, 
Will we endure when that pressure comes? As it inevitably will. What will our response be? Will we stay silent? Will we keep going? Will we endure under pressure? Absurdly happy, completely fearless, and in constant trouble. Well, we can certainly expect to be in constant trouble if we're followers of Jesus Christ and if we are proclaiming him in our world. And if we're filled with the Spirit, like Peter, then we can expect to be completely happy and completely fearless. Let's pray that that be true for us, shall we? Lord God, we do praise you for this passage that you've recorded for us in your word. We thank you for the challenge that it gives us. Thank you for Peter and John's faithfulness in testifying to you under great pressure. We thank you that you do promise your spirit to all those who ask and who turn to you in faith. Thank you that you promise to continually fill us with your power that we might speak for you. And we do pray that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we would uh, find ourselves able to speak boldly of you, that we would testify to the hope that we have, that we would know the joy that we have and the lack of fear and the confidence that we can have in serving you and being called to be your followers, whatever we might face. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.